Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's history class. You probably have gotten used to me starting with shout-outs. And I'm going to do three shout-outs for three individuals that are just outstanding people and outstanding podcasters of Mr. Stroud's history class. The first shout-out goes to a young lady who is a physical therapist. And in having physical therapy, I was talking to her, and history came up. Well, when history comes up, you know that I'm going to mention the podcast, that I was a teacher for 43 years, and all of that. And also, she asked where I taught, and I said Kilgore College, and she said the Rangerettes. She is one of the first people in North Texas that even knew who the Rangerettes were. She was a proud member of the Plano East Golden Girls, and their director was a former Kilgore College Rangerette, and she said that they would get on buses, ride to Kilgore, Texas, in the spring to watch the Rebels, and she had not only heard of them, she had seen them perform. She listened to the first podcast, Grant Lee, The Wilderness, and That Ghost, and she told me that she really enjoyed it and was going to listen to some more. So I said, say no more. That's going to get you a shout out. And so, Nicole, I hope you're still a member of Mr. Stroud's history class. And I'm very glad to have met you. The next one goes to a young lady, and I mean young, who is a medical doctor. She is Dr. Laura Schick, S-C-H-I-C-K sometimes I'm difficult to understand. And she told me that she had listened to the podcast and that she enjoyed it. Which one? Oh, my gosh. Lee Grant, the wilderness, and that ghost. And so I said, my gosh, you got to get a shout out. And she mentioned her fiance was a marine pilot. And I've got to mention something about marine pilots. Not that I was a pilot, but I was a marine and these are some of the things I've learned about being a pilot in the Marine Corps. They have to be carrier qualified. I understand that when you're getting ready to land on an aircraft carrier and you look down and see it, it's the size of a postage stamp. Also, somewhere along the line, I understand that during the Vietnam War, they would wire pilots to test their vital signs over North Vietnam with the rockets and all, and they found that they were more nervous landing on that carrier than flying over North Vietnam. Marine Corps pilots are something. Now, I will tell you this, that I was in the Marine Corps infantry, as you know, if you listen to these podcasts, and I will tell you something I don't like to mention, so don't you tell anybody, you understand? All these movies and all. I was in the infantry. We were there early in 1965. I was in firefights. But I can only remember calling in one airstrike. Now, some of the other platoons and companies may have done it. I just remember one. And this is what I remember about it. There was a Viet Cong position about 50 yards in front of us. And the lieutenant called in an airstrike. This is what I remember. I heard absolutely nothing until explosions. The explosions were 50 yards in front where the Viet Cong position was. Then I look up and I see a jet going straight up. And then I hear a sound and it sounded like a ghost, a phantom. Those Marines were flying phantom jets. And I bet you can get on YouTube and see them. His name was Brian Camberhoff. Yes, Brian Camberhoff. And he, after being a Marine Corps pilot, he became a Navy pilot. I have no reason to know why, but he did. And a pilot in the Marine Corps and in the Navy, they are really something. And so the shout-outs to Nicole, Dr. Laura Schick, and Brian Camberhoff are well-deserved shout-outs. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I told you, I think, in the very first podcast of the Civil War. 
That's a ratio. You know that boy just picked that day. That's Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, that to attack an enemy that's entrenched, you have to have them outnumbered a minimum of three to one. Because you're going to have two casualties before you get close enough to inflict casualties upon the enemy. They were using smoothbore muskets. 1861, rifled muskets, that 58 caliber spinning when it comes out, increased accuracy and distance. 1861, that ratio moves up to 5 to 1. Now we're in 1864. That ratio moves up to 7 to 1. Now when I talk classroom, I do not say face to face anymore. When I taught in the classroom, I did not have time to really go into the Civil War after Gettysburg. And so I was simply mentioned to the students. After Gettysburg, Lee never took to the offensive again. He's going to fight on the defensive. And that's what he's going to do. 1864, you're going to see in the Overland Campaign, which was the wilderness and the one we're going to talk about today in a little while, Lee is on the defensive, and boy, has he built defensive positions. Now, you know, Lee was a West Point graduate. West Point was an engineering college. When Lee was commissioned, he was commissioned as an engineer, and he was an engineer, except for becoming a hero in the Mexican War, until the War of the Rebellion breaks out. Now, I, I came up with this. I hope you enjoy it. My introduction to Mr. Lee as an engineer is he was not a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech, but he was a heck of an engineer. And what engineers know how to do is build forts. And Lee could do that. Now, I want to take this moment, because it's only going to take a moment, to tell you something else about Robert E. Lee. His father was a famous Revolutionary War cavalry officer named Light Horse Harry Lee. Now, I never got into him. I didn't get into cavalry. But I do know this, and I'm going to pass this along. One of my favorite people was George Washington. You would not find a braver man than George Washington. The man did not know fear. And when he died, Light Horse Harry Lee said, Washington was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. If you ever have a reason to pass that on and tell who came up with that, that was Light Horse Harry Lee, Robert Lee's father. Another thing about Lee, his men adored him. Remember the wilderness? Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear. Now, having been in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, I like to pass this stuff along because I'm going to remind you of a professor I had in graduate school who had been a young man in the Depression and then got into the Army in World War II as a company commander of a machine gun unit. And I could see him sitting there at the head of this little table there weren't many of us in graduate school in history. And he would say things like, Gentlemen, since I lived through the period that we're speaking of, I feel obligated to tell you a few things that you would never read in a textbook. And so using that, I bring in some of my little experiences and some of the things that I identify with because I like what that professor did. And this is what I'm going to tell you. How in the world does a private know enough about a general to adore or dislike him? I'm using me. In Vietnam, I never saw a general. I never saw the colonel. Maybe once, I don't remember. Seldom ever saw the captain. The only officer I saw 99% of the time I was there 
was the lieutenant that commanded the platoon. And I will tell you this, he was a good lieutenant, and I really, I can't use the word liked him because I didn't even think about stuff like that. But he was a good lieutenant. So my point is, I have no doubt that the men in the Army of Northern Virginia adored Robert E. Lee. Although many had never seen him, they adored him. And Lee was not an idiot. I mean, I hate to say that, but I hope you understand that. He's considered a military genius. By 1864, things are taking place. To begin with, in Washington, D.C., they had 21 hospitals, and they were overflowing with wounded. I like to mention Lincoln every now and then because this is his war. I don't get a chance to mention him a lot. But one of the things, and I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to mention it again, he did not have a, men did not have a monoscule of hate in his body. He would visit the wounded in the hospitals. And he was visiting with one, and this young wounded soldier said, Mr. President, you realize I'm a Confederate, don't you? And Lincoln said, yes, I do. But you're also an American. He would visit the wounded of the enemy. The hospitals are overflowing. The casualties are horrendous. When Grant decides to march out of the wilderness, and you remember, those Union soldiers, now this amazes me as an individual. They had eight, they had 18,000 casualties dead and wounded. And those men are singing. And you remember what they're singing? Ain't we glad to get out of the wilderness? And they thought they were going to retreat like all the other Union generals did. And what did Grant do? He turned them right. They're going back against Robert E. Lee. And those men were happy. And we say it again. 18,000 dead and wounded, and they are happy to go again. Now, Grant was a man of maps. I've not mentioned that. That man lived by maps. And there's a photograph that you can probably find of him. There's a lot of photographs of Grant during the Overland Campaign. And that's what this is, the Overland Campaign. And he is leaning over a bench looking at a map. He needed to know where the roads were. Now, Robert E. Lee saw him march out of the wilderness. His generals thought that Grant was retreating. Lee said he's not retreating. Now, here again, how did he know that? This is the first battle that he and Grant had gone against each other. And he says Grant is not retreating. I'm going to tell you how I think he knew that. First off, he reads the paper. He knew about Granite Vicksburg, Shiloh. He said he's not retreating. And when Grant turned right, Lee also said the next battle would be at Spotsylvania Courthouse. Now, how did he know that? Grant also knows the next battle would be at Spotsylvania Courthouse. How does he know that? Again, Having been in the infantry, I'm going to tell you something I've not read in a book anywhere. Okay, draw Valerie's line. You might need it every now and then. This is from having been in the infantry. A small army can march faster than a large army. Richard Anderson, a Confederate general that took Longstreet's command, because Longstreet is wounded, has been told to move and get ahead of the Army of the Potomac and stop them. He gets there ahead of the Army of the Potomac. He moves faster because he's got a smaller force. you got got 110,000 men in the Union Army, and that means mules, horses, wagons, you name it. And they're on a road. You ever been on an interstate where there's a traffic jam, an accident? Oh, yeah. 
a smaller force can move faster than a large force. And so the next battle is going to be Spotsylvania Courthouse. However, before they got to Spotsylvania, there is a road jam, a roadblock. And General Sheridan is leading the element of the Army of the Potomac. And he's the one engaged in the roadblock. And his nickname is, as you remember, Old Snapping Turtle. And he got that because of his short temper. That I read that he was the life of the party. Until he got mad, and you did not want to be in his way. Well, he is mad now with that road jam. And little Phil Sheridan comes in. He got that nickname at the military academy. And he was little. The average height of a Civil War soldier was about 5 foot 8 inches. Little Phil, excuse me, little Phil came in. And he was 5 feet 5 inches. And so little Phil comes in the tent where Meade is. Meade is already mad. And he looks at little Phil, this cavalry commander, and he blames him for the roadblock. Well, little Phil said it's not his fault. And then little Phil said something. He said, if you cut me loose, I can whip Jeb Stewart. Now, Jeb Stewart is the last of the great cavalrymen in Lee's army. That time, about that time, Grant walks into the tent. And Meade says, Sheridan said if we cut him loose, he could whip Jeb Stewart. And Grant said, did he actually say that? Yes, he did. It's what he pretty well knows what he's talking about. Let him go. Class, this let him go is different in this war than anything before. Before, the cavalry was the eyes and the ears of the army. They stayed close to him, reconnaissance. To let him go, he's going to go as an independent fighting force. And did I say a small force can move faster than a large one? Well, he's got a lot of people, but it's a lot smaller than the Army of the Potomac. And so he's going to take off. He's going to have 11,000 men. Now, you can look him up and see how many artillery pieces he's carrying and all of that. And he's going to take off to find Jeb Stewart, James Ewell Brown Stewart. Now, one time, I think I told you that the Confederate cavalry was much better than the Union cavalry. But by 1864, the Union cavalry is catching up with them. That's another thing Phil Sheridan had been doing. He believes now that a Union cavalryman is equal to a Confederate cavalryman. And somewhere in all the classes I took, I had a professor that said that when the Confederates cavalry talked about the Union cavalry, especially the Union cavalryman who was a prisoner, they would say, Ewan's is almost as good as Wins in 1864. Now, I cannot talk about two things at once. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have... Spotsylvania, hold out, and we're going to do the fight between Sheridan and Jeb Stewart. It's going to take place at Yellow Tavern. Now, Jeb Stewart has 5,000 men. He's running, not running, he's moving ahead of Phil Sheridan. And he allows Sheridan to catch him. And he caught him at a place called Yellow Tavern. And this was on May the 11th. Now, again, infantry, that's what I was. I cannot identify with the cavalry. Although being a country boy, I did grow up riding horses, and we played cavalry, but to identify with them, and I'm going to tell you something about how I know that, how I know I cannot identify with them. I had a good friend, Bobby Crane, and after I finished Hector's Texas Brigade, he said, why don't you write the history of the 8th Texas Cavalry, more famously known as Terry's Texas Rangers? I said, Bobby, their book's already out on them. I don't do books that have already been written. He said, but those are not good books. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I wanted to do something. And so I went to the official records. I read about them. Just could not identify with him.
And so I told my friend Bobby, not going to do it, can't do it. The books that are already out there, they're not bad at all. I cannot identify with the Calvary. So what I want you to do, if you want to get into this, you get a biography on Jeb Stewart, and you read about the battle at Yellow Tavern. Or you go to Wikipedia. Or you go to YouTube. And you'll find plenty on it. But what I'm going to do is give you some of the, the things that I call the signatures. And that way I can tell you what I would want you to remember in class without having to do the entire battle soldier by soldier. To begin with, before I forget, it would be considered a Union victory. But this is what I want you to remember about the Battle at Yellow Tavern. Not only did Sheridan have Stuart outnumbered, and let me, something else, 11,000 men against 5,000. I have no idea if they could get all 11,000 men into that battle. I don't know if they could or not. I know from other battles, Gettysburg, you name it, you could not get everyone in there. But I'm going to leave that to you. But not only did Sheridan have Stuart outnumbered, not only were the Union cavalry catching up to him in ability, but the firepower of the Union Army is unbelievable. So I want to tell you about some of the weapons that the Union soldiers carried in that battle. To begin with, every soldier in that battle that was a cavalryman would have two Colt revolvers. Two. They called it a brace that goes all the way back to flintlocks. And the reason is the way you had to load them. They're cap and balls, and so you carry two of them into the fight. A brace of revolvers. This is what an 1860 Army, and that 1860 Army uh, podcast, that's a collector's term. The Colt Manufacturing Company called it the new model holster pistol. And the Army signifies the caliber. It was 44. A 36 caliber coat was considered a Navy. A 31 caliber was considered a pocket pistol. So each Union cavalryman is carrying two 1860 Army Colt revolvers, 44 caliber, six shots. But that's not all. They're also carrying Spencer rifles. Now, I had a Spencer carbine at once. And I'd like to check. I want to see if these things are rifles or if they're pistols. And they're being carried by a brigade known as Wilder's Brigade. Now, Wilder was John Wilder, and he was not issued a Spencer at the beginning of the war. The Spencer was invented by Christopher Spencer, and he could not get an Army contract. And let me tell you about it. The Spencer carbine and rifle uh, approximately 52 caliber and seven shot lever action. The Confederates said the Yanks with those Spencers could load on Sunday and shoot all week. In those days, unlike now, the military was very slow to adapt a new weapon. And Christopher Spencer couldn't get this, his weapon adopted by the U.S. military. So he actually took a rifle to the White House and Lincoln fired it in the backyard at a target, which I'm quite sure is in the Smithsonian Institute. He said he liked it and to go see the Secretary of War. It still takes a long time. So what Christopher did is he went regiment by regiment by regiment by brigade and he demonstrated that for the Army. And then if they wanted one, they had to buy it right there from him. And the brigade he went to was John Wilder. Wilder loved it. His men, they're making about $8 a month. The Spencer cost maybe 14 or more. And he wanted his men to have that. So he arranged with a bank. And the bank decided to loan them the money they could buy those Spencers, but the people got embarrassed, so they went on and let them have one. But Wilder's Brigade have now got Spencers. 
Another thing about the firepower of this Spencer. After Wilder's brigade got him, they never lost another battle. And Wilder's brigade was known as the Lightning Brigade because they moved so fast. They were also known as the Hatchet Brigade because Wilder issued them hatchets instead of sabers. And they're in that battle with Phil Sheridan against Jeb Stewart. Now, Jeb Stewart himself is carrying an infamous weapon, and that's a pair of pistols known as the Lamont Revolvers. The Lamont Revolver was invented by Mr. Lamont in New Orleans, and because of the Union Cavalry and the Union Army getting close to New Orleans, he decided he had to get out of there, and so he takes a ship. And the ship he takes happens to be a British mail ship named the Trent. Are you familiar with the Trent Affair? I'm not going to take time to tell you about it. Look it up. I ought to. It's an interesting affair. But the Trent mail ship coming out of Cuba was stopped by the USS San Jacinto under command of Captain John Wilkes. He gets on a rowboat, he stops the Trent, and he takes the Confederate ambassadors off of that boat, but Lamette was on there. They don't know who he is, so they leave him there. And the Lamette revolver, again, I want you to go to YouTube and look it up, and you'll see people fire it. Okay, reproductions. It was a 42 caliber six shot that had a 40, had a shotgun as another barrel, and so it not only was a pistol, but it was a small caliber shotgun. If you see the movie Cold Mountain, I want to see that. And if you see the beginning, it's the, it's the siege at Petersburg. I'm going to tell you this again. You will see a Lamette revolver on the fortifications of the Confederates. It's just there for a split second. Now, when I saw that, I was amazed because somebody had to know what a Lamont revolver was, which is a reproduction, a reproduction in the in the movie, and put it out there. I thought, my gosh, give that man an award. But Jeb Stewart's got a Lamont revolver. Christopher Spencer has Christopher Spencer. I'm sorry. Sheridan and his cavalry have Spencer carbines. By the end of the war, the Union Army will be equipped with them. There will be 200,000 of them made. And so not only has Sheridan got more men, he got tremendous firepower. And so in the battle, and this is what I want you to know, the Union going to win it, but a private and the Union Cavalry, by the name of John Huff, H-U-F-F, using a 60 Army Colt revolver that he was issued, will kill, excuse me, will wound Jeb Stewart. That's a wound like Andy, Andy Jackson. Excuse me, podcasters. I'm not going to start over. Not Andy Jackson. Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville. It's a mortal wound. He's carried, I believe it's his brother-in-law's house. He's not going to get over it. And he dies the next day. One of the things that intrigues me, he left his sword to his son. And his sword is now in the Museum of the Confederacy at Richmond. So if you get to Richmond, you might want to go in and take a peek at it. That was the Battle of Yellow Tavern. That was a sideshow to the battle that Grant's going to fight against Lee. Now, I was doing a little research on that battle, not much, and then I remembered something. I wondered, did any of those Union cavalrymen get a Medal of Honor? So I looked it up, and by golly, podcasters, would I be disappointed 
if I were not able to tell you this. The answer to Medals of Honor for the Battle of Yellow Tavern, yes, there was one. It was awarded to Lieutenant John T. Rutherford, R-U-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D, 9th New York Cavalry, for actions on May 11, 1864, at Yellow Tavern. Now, I'm going to tell you again, these medals were awarded late in their life, most of them, and he will not get that medal until March 22, 1892. How many years is that since 1864? And again, why? I don't know. My guess is the official battle reports won't be published until the 1880s, and apparently people reading over them, these guys, that's, that's a guess. That's all it is. But if you're able to get to the official records, look up Yellow Tavern and see if he's mentioned. However, they recognized him. However, they learned about what he did. On March 22, 1892, as far as I know, he went to the mailbox and there was a little package from the Congress of the United States. And he opened it and my gosh, podcasters, there was a Medal of Honor. Now, I don't even know, would they have a sight? I know that if you turn it over on some of them, the reason for the award is on the back. They're short. In those days, the reasons were short. And so, according to the records of the Medal of Honor, the reason Lieutenant John T. Rutherford of the New York, Ninth New York Cavalry, got it for his actions on May 11th, 1864. Listen to this. Okay? I'm going to count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Eight words. Listen to these eight words. Made a cavalry charge and captured 90 men. I'm going to say that again. Made a cavalry charge and captured 90 men. That's all I know. So if you're able, go to the official records and ask if you don't have, if you've not used them, you need to get somebody to show you how to use them. And you look up his name. If his name is in there, you go to that and you see what it says. Made a charge and captured 90 men. Awarded the medal March 22nd. 1892, and this is for Donna. He's buried at Chattanooga. Although he's not from Tennessee, he's buried at Chattanooga. So there was a Medal of Honor. Meanwhile, Sheridan continues on to store more Confederate supplies, and we go back now to Grant and Spotsylvania. One of the things about 1864, it is a important year. It's an election. 1864. I want you to remember, if you know math, presidential election was 1860. They're elected for four years. He was sworn in in March of 1861. Four years is 1865, right? When they start talking about elections, they start talking about them long before November. And also, the North that was so happy when Grant came east, 11,000 casualties in one battle. You can tell when a war is becoming somewhat unpopular by what the people call it. If you don't like that war, you don't call it the War of the Rebellion. You call it Mr. Lincoln's War. When you give a personal name to a war, you don't like it. It's not a compliment. Mr. Lincoln's War. McNamara's War. 
That war is becoming very unpopular. People are wondering if it's worth the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of young men. Robbie Lee knows that. He knows there's an election coming up. The election will be 64. You take office in 65. And so by fighting on the defensive, he can inflict a large number of casualties. He reads the northern papers, and he knows that every Union soldier he kills is like a vote against Lincoln. And he has no choice but to fight on the defensive. I mentioned, I believe, in the podcast on the wilderness. He's been informed by Richmond. There are no more reinforcements. Now, here's something else I want to mention. Rant can replace his dead and his wounded. But listen to this. I've mentioned it before. I want to mention it again. These men are not widgets. What if you draft a man and he doesn't want to go? What if he's in the army and he doesn't want to go? The men that replace the casualties have to be willing to fight. And I do get tired of people saying, well, the North won because they had more men. They're not widgets. But this bloody war, the hospitals are overflowing. And during Vietnam, once a week they would give the number of dead and wounded, and then they would end with not an end in sight. Nobody knows when it's going to win, and nobody knows how it's going to end. Well, he knows that. And what was he? Not a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech, but a heck of an engineer. His fortifications at Spotsylvania, podcasters. I've never been to Spotsylvania. I've been told if you go there, you can still see signs of those trenches. I don't know what that means. So this is what I want you to do. See, I'm giving you a lot of things I want you to do. I want you to find a way with your magical computers, look at World War I, and you look at those trenches. Because these trenches at Spotsylvania are like the trenches of World War I. They are that elaborate. And the Union Army comes marching down and there is a Union General. And that Union General is one of the most beloved generals by the Union Army, in the Union Army, by those Union soldiers. His name is John Sedgwick, who is men called Uncle John. And Uncle John is with the 13th New Jersey. And he's having them dig a position because everybody's digging in now. Not like when Grant was at Shiloh. Everybody's digging in. And has his men of the 13th New Jersey. Now let me correct myself. He's with the 13th New Jersey. He's got an entire division. This is one regiment. And he's on a horse. And his men are being shot at by Confederate sharpshooters. And these Confederate sharpshooters are what we call today snipers. The Union Army had snipers. And these Confederate sharpshooters are firing at the 13th New Jersey. And the 13th New Jersey does what most people would do. They dodge. Well, Cedric saw him dodging. And he said, what are you doing? Dodging this way and that. What are you going to do when the entire line opens up on you? And then he said, they could not hit an elephant from that distance. Now, podcasters, it's a shame that that's the last words he ever spoke because that's all anybody remembers of him. He was an outstanding division commander. As I said, he was very beloved, and that is what they remember. The shot wasn't immediately, but it got him in the face, and he was killed instantly. 
Those fortifications are something. Now they start getting the entire army up there. Now mention these signatures. These battles are horrific. And the Battle of Spotsylvania will go from May the 9th to May the 21st, 1864. There's death on every day. There's fighting on every day. But that's too much to remember. I couldn't do that when I was teaching in the class. Not every day. That's like looking at the forest and trying to go through every tree. So I like that word signature. I like the signatures. And were we in the classroom, these would be the signatures I would want you to remember. The very first one is Laurel Hill, L-A-U-R-E-L. Laurel Hill was a fort, and it was one heck of a fort. So after all, Lee's not a rambling wreck. Now I'm going to mention something else. I've read only a little bit about this. And one book says the corps that's going to attack that fort will be the 5th Corps. That was the pride and joy of the Army of the Potomac. And the man that's going to be attacking it is one of, of the youngest corps commanders in the Army. His name was Governor Warren. He commanded the 5th Corps. He saved the Union Army at Gettysburg. He was also an engineer, not a heck of a an engineer at Georgia Tech, but military academy. He was an engineer, and when he looked and saw Laura Hill, he realized what a fortification that was. Now, did I mention last time? And the answer is, that's a rhetorical question. I know I mentioned no such thing as a suicidal attack. I have thought about that. Even in class when I would make statements like, I would think about them. I'm not changing my mind. Now what I'm talking about, it's not a private. Not a private saying, my gosh, if we attack again, that's, uh, I'm talking about Grant. Because I've read that Grant could care less about how many thousands of young men died. He did not care. He's using Fredericksburg math. See, I have a trouble agreeing with that because I don't agree with it. Now, to show you that there's no such thing as a suicidal charge given by Grant, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to think has anything to do with Battle of Spotsylvania and the Civil War. So listen to it. Last January... Late at night, I was flipping channels, and by golly, there was a football game. It was out west, so it was late. And not only is it late, it's late in the game. There's only about eight seconds left, fourth quarter. And the game between the Oregon Ducks and the Oregon State Beavers. Podcasters, I didn't even know there was a team called the Oregon State Beavers, but there they were. I knew about the ducks, but not the beavers. The beavers were like on the three-yard line of the ducks. They were behind more than a field goal. The beaver have got to score a touchdown to win. There's like five seconds left in the game. It's pouring down rain. The talking experts in the booth are saying, they're going to have to give it to that running back. they got to give it to that running back. Guess what they do? Quarterback sneak. Didn't make it. The talking experts, they got to give it to that running back. they got to give it to that running back. Quarterback sneak. Didn't make it. Now give it to the running back. Give it to the running back. Quarterback sneak. Didn't make it. Lost a few yards. And the quarterback was hurt. Had to leave the game. Fourth down. About two seconds left. And the quarterback that comes in had never played a college down at all. And the talking experts are going crazy. He'll have to give it to the running back. Got to give it to the running back. Got to give it to the running back. 
I want you to call the play. Now, this is real life. This is not a movie. Call the play. Quarterback sneak. Real life. Not a movie. What happened? Touchdown. Touchdown. The experts in the booth were as silent as anything you could not hear. Not a word was being said. Touchdown. Was that a suicidal play? My point is, Grant was like a bulldog. He was as stubborn as a bulldog. He kept pounding and pounding and pounding. So I think that explains more about what Grant does. But at Laurel Hill, this was a fortification. If you were a private, you didn't want to go against. But Governor Warren had to. And those men went in and they were slaughtered. Slaughtered. He's told to charge again. Again, they're slaughtered. A third time. Now, according to one book, this was never in Warren's heart. He didn't want to do it. And his superior said, you do it. Orders are orders. He did it, and they were slaughtered. Laurel Hill was a slaughter for the Union Army. The fortifications that Lee had were tremendous. Now, there's some officers here that I've told you about in the past. Some that you've talk, I've talked to you about. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. He's back. He'd been wounded a third time, shot in the hill. And while he was home recuperating from that, he picked up the name Achilles. He's back. He said now that he's more dangerous than it was before because he's adjutant and he's on a horse and it's an easier target. Somebody else did his back. And that is Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin. Now this is amazing. I've got Dawes' book. Dawes had been everywhere in these bloody battles. Antietam, Gettysburg. He had several horses shot from under him at Gettysburg. Other battles that I'm not even going to mention. This man has seen it, people. And he says that with the attack on Laurel Hill will begin the worst 48 hours of the war. I'm going to say that again. The worst 48 hours of the war. He was in the attack on Laurel Hill. One of the things he did, I like to point out things that you don't read in other books, that Warren came running around their own foot and he was about to expose himself to the enemy and Dawes reached down and grabbed his belt around his saber and held him back. They're going to go out and fight again. I have to mention this about Dawes. He was a good commander. Worst 48 hours. And his men were emotionally worn out. They'd had it. They're going to fight at another place called the Mule Shoe. They've had it. And what Dawes did is he took his command and he marched them somewhat to the rear and let them rest. Amazingly, I'm sure this is going to be amazing to you. This triggers something else. It triggers a book I read years ago about the amount of desertion in the U.S. Army in World War II fighting in Europe. Thousands. Thousands. But this is the type of desertion. So I'm going to give you one example. And I used to give this to my students in class. This man had landed at Normandy and been in every fight. And by now, his platoon that was, I don't know what an army platoon was then, but maybe 26 men. There's only about six that are still left. Now, of course, they got replacements. And one day, he just picked up his M1 rifle and he started marching to the rear. And he found a farmhouse and he wanted to rest. And he stayed there a couple of days and they came back to his unit. 
and there was a new lieutenant there, and he was arrested for desertion, went to a court-martial. The officers on the court-martial were all non-combat officers. They found him guilty. And then before they sentenced him, they gave him this option. Listen to this. You're going to get 50 years of hard labor at Leavenworth. Unless you do one thing. If you do this, you will not go to penitentiary at all. Go back to your unit. If you agree to go back to your unit, get back into the fight, you won't have to go to Leavenworth. So I would ask my students, answer that. Every one of them said, go back to the unit. And you know what I reminded them? They weren't being shot at. That soldier, 50 years hard labor, or go back to the war, he said 50 years hard labor. That's how horrendous this combat is. Another lieutenant, when he had men that were just worn out, it's a lieutenant in World War II, U.S. Army, was just worn out. He told him to go back and rest and come back in a few days. He didn't court-martial him. His name was none other than Audie Murphy, Medal of Honor, most decorated soldier of World War II. He knew. So when Dawes takes his men back and lets them rest, he's doing what Audie Murphy did. He knows that you're not going to wear these men out and that he understands because he's been in combat. Now, Laura Hill is one of the signatures. The next one is a place called the Horseshoe. Now, it took a while for me to find out the dimensions of the Horseshoe. These fortifications of Lee, I can't find anything. How many miles were they? Somewhere along the line, I think four miles. But because of the way the fortifications were, there was a place in his fortifications that was like a horseshoe. That's where the next attack is going to be. Once more, just like at Laurel Hill, one regiment after another gets slaughtered. And then a young lieutenant comes up, General Grant. He just graduated from the military academy a couple of years before. I understand that he was not a nice guy. He did not like his superior officers. That's not what I'm getting at. If we were in a classroom, this is what I want you to remember. His name was Emory Upson. Emory Upton, U-P-T-O-N. And he told General Grant that he'd come up with a way to attack that was successful in a very small engagement, but maybe they ought to try that. And Grant listened, and Grant decided he'd try that. Now, if we were in a classroom, I could draw it on the board. But instead of having these long lines from one end to the other, one end to the other, you got to have an end, right? going from east to west. And in a classroom, I would draw it on the board and you see what I'm talking about. He said, we can't do that. That's what we've been doing the entire war. He said, this is what I did. He makes it like a rectangle. And we move like a rectangle. But we do not fire our muskets, nor do we give any war cries until we're on top of them. And that's when we let them have it. And Grant tried it. Now, people, I'm sorry, I forget how many men he used it. And it was successful. He broke the horseshoe. But one of the things I keep reading when these Union soldiers break through, for some reason, and this is a failure of command, and the, there's no reinforcements. And so although they drove a long way and captured a lot of prisoners and stuff, the Confederates rally and come back and drive them out. So Grant does it again on a much larger scale. And this is a, an attack that has more men in it than what Pickett had at the so-called, excuse me, what was at the so-called Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. 
and once more, it was successful. They broke through using that rectangle. Now, I want to tell you, I want you to go to your YouTube, and I want you to go to a Civil War souvenir shop in Gettysburg. And this is, oh, let me think of the name of it. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I forgot. Oh, oh, the Union Drummer Boy. Go to the Union Drummer Boy. And I want you to go there, and you see all the different things it's got. And I want you to hit the category, Prince, P-R-I-N-T-S. And you write in, Spotsylvania. And when you do that, you're going to see the only painting I've seen of the Battle of Spotsylvania. And what is interesting to me is that was done by the gentleman who's going to become known as the father of the American Christmas card. And so you can see what Upton's attack was like at the bloody angle. They broke through. There's going to be more fighting in there. Amazing. The number of men that are killed and wounded and how long they fight at the bloody angle. The soldiers there, what little I was able to read, they called it, it was like a mob. It was like a mob. And they're going to fight for about 10 hours. And the blood is everywhere. The bodies are everywhere. Now, I hate to say this, but I'm going to do it. Because these podcasts, understand, last forever out there in cyberspace. If you want to see what a mob attack looks like, the January attack on the national capital, January 6th, there's a mob. I also want to remind you of this. The Vietnam veterans that came to my class years ago and sang that song, in the middle of the fight, it does not matter who is wrong and who's right. But this is what gets those men that just kept fighting. Now, I'm sure it's not the same ones, but you fight for like nine hours. The horseshoe now is given another name, the bloody angle. Lee's defenses hold. There's still more fighting, but what Grant realized is Lee's line will not be broken. And so he writes to Halleck. That's his superiors in Washington. We have lost 11 general officers and 20,000 men dead and wounded. And in the middle of the report, he wrote, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. It's buried in the report. The newspaper picks it up. And the northern public, reading that in that paper, that line, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer, people, it leaped off the pages and became like a battle cry. I remember when I started 1864 and they were dancing in the streets, they were so happy, here they go again. That lifted their morale. I can't explain why. It's just that this man is not going to retreat. Unfortunately, he cannot fight it out on that line if it takes all summer because Lee's fortifications had no weak spot. And soon after that, he is going to have to retreat. Now, I'm going to tell you, I meant to, I meant to do this podcast sooner. And if I had been able to do it sooner... I'd have told you to go to the horse soldier at Gettysburg and in the spot where you searched, search for Captain Henry Warren. And you'd have seen his picture and his sword. Henry Warren was killed at the bloody angle. And how in the world that sword was saved? Can you imagine? And ended up being for sale in 2021 at the horse soldier. I tried yesterday to see if it was still there, and it's not. It's been sold. But anyway, oh, and one other thing I want to mention, too. I'm sorry. Sorry. But Lee's army, when these Union soldiers were attacking, he had artillery there. And one of the generals of the artillery was Colonel, Colonel I'm sorry, General Edward Porter Alexander, who was considered the best artilleryman in the Confederate Army. 
and Captain Henry Warren was killed by a cannon shot, which I'm sure had something to do with Porter Alexander. Now, I did find the name. No, I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry, people. Spotsylvania, the father of the Christmas card, but I don't have his name down here. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm sorry. In class, that's what I would do. I continue on. Understand? Instead of stopping this podcast and starting over, I'm going to continue on. The father of the American Christmas card that painted the breakthrough at the bloody angle was named Louis Prang, P-R-A-N-G. And if you go to the Union Drummer Boy and find that painting and read the description, it would tell you why he's the father of the Union Christmas card and what is so unique about that painting. Now that's the fighting. That's the major fighting. Remember, the con- battle continues. But that's it. Grant's going to leave Pennsylvania and try to get around Lee and head for Richmond. But what do I do? Now draw Valerie's line. I want you to draw Valerie's line. A couple of things I like to do that, again, I'm going to tell you, others do not do. I know they don't do it. I read their books. When I was in graduate school and undergraduate, I took their classes. They do not do this. And if you find a podcast that does do it, well, you let me know, understand? On the next podcast, you raise your hand and you say, Mr. Strauss, you're not the only one. Because you know what? I don't think you can do it. Now, I'm going to mention again, because I like Valerie. I really like her. I hadn't seen her for a long time. I used to go to this natural food restaurant over in Longview, Texas, Jack's Natural Food. I'll advertise them. Delicious. And these young ladies would actually talk to me. And one of them said, if you come over here on Sunday afternoon, we're not very busy. We have time to visit. So I did that. I did that. And one of those young ladies was a lady named Valerie. Not a lady. She was a girl. I looked up. I went, when does a girl become a lady? And said, age 25. She wasn't 25. And I told her, and I knew you've heard this, I'd gotten some compliments on my podcast and my bragging if I show them to you. And she thought, and she said, okay, here's the deal. One or two, that's fine. But three or more, you cross the line. So you better draw Valerie's line as it's a judgment call. Am I bragging? I'm just stating a fact. And what I want you to know, and I told a gentleman today, with every battle in the Civil War, I mentioned at least three recipients of the Medal of Honor. Only had one for Yellow Tavern, but by golly, I had it. Also for Spotsylvania, there were some Medals of Honor. There were about 23 of them. I don't do 23. You can look them up. But I'm going to do a couple. And that is... First Medal of Honor, oh, I, okay, I found, there were 42 Medals of Honor for Spotsylvania. The one I'm going to do, the first one, is the 17th of Michigan. He received that Medal of Honor on July 30th, 1896. And the Medal of Honor went to Private Albert Frederick. And it was he rescued Lieutenant Charles H. Todd of his regiment who had been captured by shooting down one and knocking over another with the butt of his musket. He got that in 1896, that Medal of Honor. Another one, this was for May 12th. He gets it in September the 23rd, 1897. Sergeant Nathaniel Baker 11th New Hampshire for actions on May 12, 1864. Six color bearers of the regiment having been killed, he took both flags of his regiment and carried them through the remainder of the battle. Flags were extremely important. 
when I said both flags of his regiment, what flags am I talking about? One would be the U.S. flag, and the other would be the regimental flag. Medal of Honor. The last one was for action on May the 18th, 1864. Colonel John Kinsey, 45th Pennsylvania, seized the colors of the color bearer, having been shot, and with great gallantry, success in saving them from capture. Seized the colors, the color bearer having been shot, and with great gallantry, success in saving them from capture. Three of the 42 Medals of Honor for the Battle of Spotsylvania. The podcasters, that's the end of this podcast. And I hope you forgive me for my little gaffes. I wasn't going to start over. I've done that before. You don't know that because I started over. I didn't want to this time. I wanted to get this podcast out. And if you are a podcaster and you attended Mr. Stroud's history class in the Battle of Spotsylvania, I appreciate you being in this class more than I can ever say. In fact, I'm going to try to get to Professor Google. I think Professor Google is also an English instructor and come up with some adjectives. Tell you how happy I am that you are a member of Mr. Stroud's history class. Have a good time between class. And when you come back to class, continue to have a good time. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it more than any words I could come up with. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And what I'm trying to do is get where I can turn this off. All righty, here we go.